Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I am joined by my co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, so great to see you. What's going on? Hi, Rob. Happy Monday. How are you doing? Happy Monday. Yes. Yeah. Off to another great start. Yeah. Dominating. Ready to dominate. Right? We're crushing it. Yeah. We're crushing the, the week. It's now May. Can you believe yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. When did that no, happen? I can't. No, I can't. I have not accomplished <laughs> as much as I had hoped to at this point in the year. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it's already kind of, I'm already behind schedule. I'm going to have a lot of work to make up for it. Oh, so, yeah. Anyway, two, th two, one third through the year at this point. Yes. That's right. Um. So, Nadia, I, had, I, was, I was having a conversation with someone this week, maybe. Mm -hmm think of you, I wanted to ask, what is the worst advice you ever got from a manager? I guess it could be from anyone. What's the worst advice you ever got? Well, one thing comes to mind is I always got consistently from managers that I needed to speak up more often in a group setting or work, you know, like a meeting. And they attributed that to me lacking confidence. And, you know, it's it's interesting because like when I was in my 20s and maybe early 30s, I took that advice to heart. So I was always like, oh, my gosh, you're not confident. I doubted myself. And I was constantly kind of questioning whether I had like the skill set or capabilities, right, of, of the right. things that I was learning. And then as I got older, maybe it does come with age or I don't know, wisdom, whatever it is. But I realized that like telling me, for example, I'm not going to say I'm not going to generalize and say all women are all people of color, but like telling me someone who is a woman and a person of color that I either lack the confidence or that I'm not speak, I need to speak up more. Um, mm -hmm. I, I kind of, I, I reflect on that a lot because oftentimes I've, I like going into a situation where I may not know people and want to kind of seek to understand. So I may actually put on my thinking, my thinking hat in that meeting mm -hmm. versus like coming in kind of guns blazing, no, acting like I know everything. Um, and so I, I, I started to kind of reflect more on like that feedback that I was always getting. And um, it has almost like a self-fulfilling like, profit, mm. right? Like aspect to it too, right? You're told. Yeah. And yeah. I, I often think women and I think I do think women for sure receive 
the confidence piece a lot in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Like you're just not confident enough because I've, many of my peers have gotten that feedback. And I I don't think that's necessarily true because then if you come in guns blazing and you act with all confidence, then you're kind of labeled as like being too abrasive and you're, you're Mm -hmm. too like you're a know-it-all. And so you can't win. (laughs) It's right. Right, It's like um, either way. So yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's the worst. It's, I think it's not the most actionable. And Mm. when I think of like providing feedback from an observation perspective, you can observe that I'm like quiet in a meeting, but then you're jumping the gun to say that I need to be more maybe assertive. And I don't think that's really, I don't think that's really truly getting to like understanding why I might be Mm -hmm. quiet or, or reflective or thinking, but that's a great question. I'm curious. What, what about you? I was thinking about this because I was once told, or I was given the advice, uh, I just wish you could be less Rob. No. <laughs> like, 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 like less yourself. Like, yeah. Like that something like something to that effect. I can't remember the exact quote. It was like, I, I just need less Rob from you in this oh in gosh. this role. And that's uh, like so offensive. You know, and I'm very accommodating. So I was like, I was like, oh, I'll see what I can do. I, you know, yeah. you want me to be someone else? I, what do you want me to do? So yeah, let me um, tone that down for you. I just think about it. I just think about it in the terms of like, you know, we talk about inclusion and it's, it's so it's such a big aspect of it. Is yeah. I can be myself. Yeah, I mean, like I you're literally had a manager. Your... Yeah, I literally had a manager say like, just less of you is what I need. Oh my gosh! And so like it's that's wild. yeah. So so yeah. Every time I think about it, I laugh really hard. Like I probably didn't think it was very funny at that point, yeah. but I just think, wow, that person was a complete loser. So and then anyway. everything you're doing, like everything you're doing, you have to like do the opposite of because you're like that's too much. That's too Rob. <laughs> that's that's too how Rob-ish. Rob would do it. Yeah. That's how Rob. Yeah. Is. Oh my gosh. All right. So let's talk about, let's, let's get some deets. You got to, you got something for us? Yeah, absolutely. So black and Latinx leaders at the asset management company, BlackRock are quitting at a rapid pace, according to an audit conducted by Covington and Berlin LLP. So um, retention was identified as one of the organization's key challenges. Um, So it's interesting, Rob, recruitment efforts at this organization actually met their goals on diversifying its overall workforce Mm -hmm. since 2020. Um, But they were finding that attrition rates of black senior leaders almost equaled the increases in hiring that we're seeing. They also said the attrition also impacted Latinx staff. Um, They had a goal that by 2024 to boost overall black and Latinx staffing by 30%, which they met, but because of the attrition rates that were happening, they now have 7.8% of black employees and 7.7% of Latinx employees. Um, are you surprised by this, Rob? What, like, what do you, what are your thoughts over there? No, <laughs> not at all. I, I enjoy it a little bit in, in some respects. So, I mean, so let me just, so diversity, right, is a function of not only hiring, but also mobility advancements and sure. retention. Right? So I say retention versus attrition because I'm a glass half full guy, as you know. Just like in customers, right? So retention is the gift that keeps on giving. So just like it costs more to go out and, and, and acquire a new customer versus ma- making the customers you already have happy, same thing. It's a lot easier to go out and hire folks, uh, or it's a lot more costly to go out and hire folks than to take care of the employees that you have in-house as well. So sure. I... You know, employees definitely get focused on how can we bring new people into the organization and lose focus on how they're treating people either once they get in the door or the folks they already have and making sure that they're advancing, make sure that they're engaged. And so I think what I what I said I enjoyed it, what I enjoyed is that these are some of the smartest people 
uh, in the world. They're very quantitative centered. Um, they are analytically gifted mm-hmm. and they screwed this up, right? And they needed to have Eric Holder's law firm come in and tell yeah. them that they screwed this up, right? So, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I looked at that 74 page report written by the law firm and it's yeah. pretty wild. Um, and you can read between the lines a lot of things that they talk about in terms of their observations. I don't know. Did you look at the, did you look at the report? I didn't get to look report? at the report. I was curious. I was like, oh, Rob's going to dig in deep on this one. I yeah. Know. Yeah. Thanks for giving me that one too. It's like yeah, a 74 page assignment. Right. But, um, it seems as though they made the commitments without understanding necessarily what it would mean and not investing in the infrastructure to support those commitments and not necessarily right. making this a leader led endeavor. So like yeah. their DEI strategy has three pillars only one of which is talent and culture. And you can see that the DEI resources all sit in HR, so they have no ability to impact what's going on outside right. of HR. They also mentioned that DEI meets with business leaders three times a year, beginning, middle, and end. So it's not like they're having regular conversations. It's not like DEI is embedded in what's happening in that organization. Yeah. And they said at one point that they had 123, I mean, this goes back to talent acquisition, but they had 123 talent acquisition people and three had diversity responsibilities. So. It's very consistent what we often see in terms of people making big commitments, not necessarily yeah. understanding how to operationalize and build out the infrastructure necessary to meet those commitments. Absolutely. You nailed it right on the head. And, you know, I think it's quite telling, in fact, for the last three years, DEI efforts have been a culmination of like DEI training, recruiting efforts. And now people are really starting to consider using meaningful DEI data and like strategically um, think about how what you know what indicates to the organization where people are either engaged um where they feel safe where they feel like they belong um i will say that i have actually had clients in the investments and management aspect industries and mm-hmm. it's an industry like you said right it's like very, they're very smart people it's an industry known for rigorous long hours um mm-hmm. keeping their clients very happy doing whatever it takes like so you work hard play hard and there's very little work life balance and sometimes flexibility. And so candidly, this is why there's so much burnout and a a lack of accountability for managers. So there's gaps in trust, like I said, psychological safety. I'm not surprised. And frankly, I think we will see this in other industries as well, like you said. It's pretty consistent across the board from organization to organization. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this organization. I do love the report though. I do love the report. Like the report, and I told you, yeah. I told you, I want to do a show where we just like read through and uh, look at these some of these reports and we review them like a movie yeah. re- reviewer would do. I would. That's, let's like, the worst do idea it. Ever. I think. I think. I think people would enjoy that. Actually, I, don't... <laughs> <laughs> I know we would. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like not a huge ratings win, but we'll see. All right. So next story at the Virginia Military Institute. My alma mater. No, just kidding. Uh, Martin D. Brown, the chief diversity officer for Governor Glenn Youngkin, spoke before VMI faculty and staff uh, this a week, couple of weeks ago, a week and a half ago, at a mandatory annual employee inclusive excellence training. Brown declared DEI dead. He made it a point. If you watched the video, he made it a point to say that he killed a cow. He was really enthusiastic about killing this cow. Like almost yeah. made me worry about him. And really into killing the cows. Um, he also kicked off the meeting by praying to Jesus, which I personally can't get enough of, as you know, but I know. may not be appealing to everybody. And so I do want to, so I want you to react and then I have a question yeah. for you. So tell me, what, what did you think okay. of Mr. Brown? Yeah. I mean, I personally, I found it to be like utterly ridiculous that this person who claims to be a DEI practitioner thinks that, right? And 
I'm actually offended like by his mindset and, and his practice because there are many of us true DEI practitioners who have like not only received the education and the credentials um, on how to really navigate DEI in the in the business world within or within organizations, but have like been practicing organizational change management, talent development, you know, and, and bridging kind of the scholarly gap by doing rigorous mm -hmm. evidence-based research. I don't care where you stand politically, but if you are going to bring in a prayer, like you said, and kind of acknowledge Jesus to kick off your training session that's around DE&I, like, I don't, I'm not really certain that you're really understanding the fundamentals of the dimensions of diversity. Um, I don't know, get a life, you know, that's, that's how I feel. <laughs> but, but you probably have a more like, political correctness around no, no, this. So I think, what's, what's so your take? I just, I mean, obviously I think there's, a, so my question is based on the fact that he seems to have a problem with the term equity, right? If you go back and look at his remarks and has changed the name of the office to DOI, Diversity Opportunity Inclusion. And so the school had removed this language from the website that, and the, the language is that equity means recognizing that we do not all start from the same place. We must acknowledge and make adjustments to address historical and existing discrimination. Inequities happen when unfair or biased practices, policies, and situations contribute to a lack of equality. Equity must permeate all practices, policies, and procedures for every constituent. So, and, and Brown says that generally when you're focused on equity, you're not pursuing merit or excellence or achievement. Not all the time, but if you're looking at equal outcomes. So, mm -hmm. so he fundamentally just misses the boat. He doesn't understand equity in the context of EEI. He just, he just, you know, it's just a swing and a miss, right? Yeah. But he may somehow end up at the same place strategic just like by he might uh, and so and so yeah. do you think that this could be a good rebrand for equity uh to oh. get conservatives to get excited we call it opportunity instead of equity and we and we actually practice everything that vmi had on their website and think about it that way but we just rebranded as opportunity what do you think i mean okay so it's a different word maybe a different uh, way to <laughs> yeah, de yeah. describe it whatever yeah. i mean sure I think it's also it's not just conservatives. There was a conversation that Bernie Sanders had a few months ago on Bill Maher, and he, he himself could not describe or define what equity meant. Um, no. I think that's a big problem. Like you have politicians who can't even define what equity means. So, yeah, fine. If it's still going to be if the outcome is still the same, then perhaps. But I think all of it's going to have to be rebranded, especially from <laughs> the anti-wokeness yeah. movement that's occurring right now. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's my point is that you know, there probably is some rebranding to be done. And Mr. Brown may have given us some insight as to what gets these folks excited. Uh, you know, so if, if it's this, if it's a different word to, to do it right and do it, you know, and do the same thing is what the way I think about equity work, uh, mm -hmm. then I think that uh, could be an opportunity. Oh, look, I just did. I just, oh, look, full you just used the yeah. word. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a little, I'm skeptical. So let's, let's, I'm open to understanding more about it, but I don't know. I don't know, Rob. All right. All right. Skepticism from Nadia. Thanks for that. Good good time with the deets today. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Clarice Owens, the co-founder of Healthy Ocean Seafood Company. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Clarice Owens. Clarice is the co-founder of Healthy Ocean Seafood Company a Santa Cruz, California-based, vertically integrated manufacturer of sustainable, wild-caught seafood products. Healthy Ocean's flagship product, Pescavore, is an ounce-and-a-half single-serve portion of tuna jerky that contains five times the omega-3s, half the sodium, and five times less sugar than the nation's leading meat snack. Their locally-caught tuna has a fraction of the carbon footprint of meat and is the first-of-its-kind innovation in the $3 billion U.S. meat snacks category. Clarice started her career as the first black female conferred in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo's more than 100-year program in aerospace engineering, and her previous experience includes stops in top-tier technology companies like Boeing, solar turbines, and Bloom Energy before shifting her focus towards sustainable food systems. She is passionate about the intersection between food and technology and brings an outsider perspective to a legacy industry that is ripe for disruption. Clarice Owens, it is so great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Wow, that's the best introduction I've ever received. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> wow. Clarice, it's so good to finally meet you. And I must say, I'm also passionate about food and technology. <laughs> so that's really exciting. But um, let's start talking about issues of diversity and equity in the seafood industry. So you're a Black female co-founder of a seafood company. What about your identity do you think either led you to um, seafood, um, and what does your perspective as someone who is underrepresented in the industry bring to seafood? Great question. And jumping right in, I love it. Um, so <laughs> I, I am an unlikely advocate, certainly in the seafood and the ocean space. Um, we are, and for some, for whatever reason, my interest seems to take me in the fields and in which I am one, usually one, and sometimes <laughs> one in an office of thousands, and often in uh, one woman among many men. Um, in this case, my partner, Matt, um, my business partner and my life partner, it was my introduction into seafoods and care for our oceans. 
He started his career in the Peace Corps um, as a rural aquaculture extension agent in Zambia and then a trainer in Ghana and then uh, an aquaculture specialist. He ran a farm basically taking uh, tilapia out of Lake Volta and culturing them in tropo aquaculture farms in Ghana. Um, I met him when he was in grad school and I was working for solar turbines and it was my first exposure, although I've for most of my life lived in proximity to the ocean. It was more my first exposure to issues of sustainable seafood. And that was the first time I ever tried fresh tuna, albacore caught right off the coast of California. And I didn't even know the fishery was there. Um, and so it was Matt's passion for the oceans that really led to my focus um, on the ocean space and really traveling around with him to some of the more indigenous communities like in the Solomon Islands um, and Marjoro, which is actually where we had our aha moment about fish jerky, and really observing how other indigenous cultures really localize their supply chain. For instance, there's a cannery in the Solomon Islands that their entire supply chain from vessel all the way to shelf is wholly integrated within the Solomon Islands. And that, if you know anything about seafood, is incredibly rare. Here in the U.S. market, 90% of our seafood comes from abroad. With it, right. there are, it changes hands five to seven times. And with our dependence on these foreign fisheries comes all of these social and environmental externalities like slavery, right. like um, overfishing, poor regulation. And even when you try to do the right thing, for instance, there's a lot of fraud. And so poor traceability mm -hmm. leads to IUU fish. And we know IUU fishing, which uh, for those who are not initiated, is illegal, un unreported and unregulated fishing. We know that's trashing our oceans. Mm. And so not having traceability from vessel to shelf is one of the biggest issues for our oceans. And so bringing that back to like, how am I this black woman in this highly cis white hetero <laughs> industry? Um, it, Matt, who is himself a cis white hetero male, but obviously an ally, was my um, introduction into the space. And when we started, we thought it would be quite simple. We thought that we would have this great product. The market would accept it. Um, you know, the, the, the story of most CPG founders, and it's been entirely not that. We have mm. um, really dealt with some highly unique struggles as a result of identity factors in this space. And not, and oh. interestingly enough, the legacy seafood supply chain has been some of our greatest advocates, our earliest investors, and it's actually this like this new space that's supposedly sustainable and inclusive and, mm. you know, what the natural food industry sort of stakes their claim on creating a better world. We've gotten a lot more issues from that side of the, the paradigm, which is interesting. Yeah. 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 So, so talk to us about some of those. I mean, my, my mind naturally jumps to the funding and building process. I mean, so, so you can start there, but. Go wherever you want to go in terms of what are the barriers that you've seen. And you mentioned that they are somewhat related to identity factors. Yeah. So just from the start, we're an oddball for sure. You know, from our aha moment, we were, I was traveling with Matt in Marjoro, which is a low-lying atoll in the Marshall Islands. It's also one of the largest tuna transshipment ports in the world. Um, and it's just this really cool community. There, there's a lot of surfing and diving, which we're really into. But um, there's also all of this commercial activity going around around the fishery. 
And there's an organization called MEMRA um, that does most of the local fishing. And their families take this marlin uh, that they catch and turn it into fish jerky. And they sell it in the local resort, which is called Robert Reimers. And we were staying there. And, you know, when we weren't eating sashimi, we were eating tuna jerky. We were like, wow, you know, why doesn't this exist here in the States? Mm -hmm. Um, And when we got home, it was like, wow, we really went down um, the Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole. There are lots of reasons why fish jerky is not in markets in the States. And, you know, everything about food and good food starts with good products. And so there are Mm -hmm. inherent limitations in fish protein that make it, when you try and dry it, it becomes rancid. It has shelf stability issues. If you can get it shelf stable Mm. by drying it, then um, you can't put your teeth into it. So, you know, humans have had dried fish in their lives since the 1400s. It was originally called like buckle how or clip fish. But it's never enjoyed a premium positioning in like your local Whole Foods or your Sprouts market because of these inherent limitations. Mm -hmm. So that was like Mm -hmm. the start of our like, wow, this is a great idea, but how do we actually make it good, shelf stable? Um, And that started this whole like, well, who can co-pack this for us? That's the natural Mm -hmm. first question that any CPG, any starting CPG brand asked themselves. And that took us on a journey from... Uh, Canada all the way down to Baja looking for co-packers. And what we found is that no one could do our process, which is incredibly unique and is now we've patented. Um, And so it was like, okay, well, no one can do it. So what do we do here? I guess we're going to have to do it um, because we were that Mm -hmm. passionate and committed to to the idea. And so we jumped all the way into the deep end like a couple of naive idiots and bought... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a seafood process like Matt scrapped together every dime um, he could ice savings, his savings, family, friends, even like his boss. Like this is how ambitious we were about acquiring what was a dilapidated seafood processing plant in Santa Cruz. Right. Um, right. That was Santa Cruz. Yeah, right here in Santa Cruz. That was um, we had a vision for it. We could see that our we could run our process out of it. But gosh, it was in disrepair. It needed Perm- it had a, the, the one thing it did have was a seafood processing permit in proximity to market. Okay. Um, and yeah. so we, um, we bought the building without a source of finance for the rest of the business, making us like the oddest ball. The only thing I've heard that, that, that sounds somewhat similar is actually Hamdi from Chobani, who supported us through the incubator. Oh. Yeah. So he's like, mm. his story is oh, kind wow. of, it, which is unique and inspiring because he's you know, one of them most influential people in food. But yeah, he bought a yogurt processing plant on an SBA loan in a, in a dream. That's right. Yeah. So yes, I remember. So that, I mean, there's that challenge and, and us just being odd, but then as we've kind of solved those oddities and built up our supply chain and built up better product with greater traction, amazing market fit. We're in target. We're in, so we've been in Seven Eleven performing at the top of our class Safeway. Um, we've been surprised to see barriers to access to capital, barriers to inclusion, Mm -hmm. trade groups being Mm -hmm. founded that from companies that came after us purposely excluded us from these trade groups. And then, you know, are in the, in the world characterizing our venture as being non-collaborative or, Mm. um, and it, yeah. So what's, 
what's so interesting, what I find so interesting about it is the insidious nature of how some of these aggressions towards underrepresented founders um, mm-hmm. meet their mark. And so one story to, to definitely know about and that I'm a student of all of this, um, of all of this history of CPG and, you know, how they position their, um, you know, building a better world and how they, they actually execute on those values as opposed to just being performative about them. Um, and for me, that's like understanding other founders who have come before. So like if you look at the story of Taka Bar, you see very mm-hmm. interesting similarities between um, them trying to build a, a responsible supply chain, domestic, fully housed, indigenous, um, great product, great traction. And then here this other company comes along and receives all of this support from basically a mob um, that, you know, disenfranchise these founders of their business. That's so that's I mean, I I don't want to say I'm surprised because I don't think I am surprised, but it is alarming that that still is occurring. Um, So tell me more, too, about when we think of sustainability and I would imagine that there are kind of these bigger brands or bigger multinational kind of organizations. What are some of the practices that the big food engages in that is problematic to someone like yourself, like a founder, someone who's looking for innovation within the sustainability realm? Are you are you also seeing challenges in that space as well as it relates to sustainability? That is a really interesting question because so in my own life, first I was working in for established corporations like Boeing and solar turbines, which was owned by Caterpillar. And then I switched over to the startup landscape, which was like Bloom Energy. And so I've seen both sides of like big industrial corporations and then startups. And what I found is like startups tend to have this mentality that there's industrialism is the enemy and corporations are the enemy. But when I switched over, what I saw was like, man, this is a free for all. So you have like, (laughs) if you read about some of Tesla's history, you have people being called the N-word on the manufacturing floor. Like, this is just a mess. And it's interesting, like companies like Ford, you think when they were founded in like 1900, their company has gone through the civil rights movement. It's gone through mass cultural shifts in American values and wars and and in and, and doing that, a lot of these corporations have established values that actually protect workers mm-hmm. and protect mm-hmm. um, progress and invest in progress. Um, and I see sure. I actually see a lot of the same thing in, in big food. Like it's it's very easy to say that big food is the enemy. But then when you look at how they enculturate progress and actually invest in mm-hmm. progress, then I, what I see is like you, you, you certainly can't. Um, argue that big food hasn't done a lot of environmental damage. Um, but mm-hmm. that there's a learning process to that. And if you sure. change 1% of big food, you might change all that. That probably accounts for the entire landscape for the insurgent brands that are trying to disrupt big food. So we've never really, and, and, and it's the same in fisheries, like pre-competitive collaborations that happen between 
the world's largest tuna traders and vessel owners and et cetera, these people have the ability through small shifts in the way that they're sourcing fish to um, and impact massive changes and fisheries and ocean health. And so we've never been of the mind that um, strategics are the enemy or fish, fishing companies are the enemy. And like I said, they've been also some of our first investors and mm-hmm. have also, while they don't want us printing their name in the newspaper, they've remained quiet when we've been pretty activist in our communications mm-hmm. and you know, calling out dirty when we see it. And, you know, I've I've been surprised at how quietly supportive some of these individuals have been. And, you know, um, there's this this film called Fish and Men that talks about some of the issues that I've highlighted, namely our dependence on foreign seafood supply chains and not just the environmental impacts that it's having and the social impacts in foreign geographies with slavery, but in our own geographies, like American fishermen are a dying resource. They're a dying species. They can't feed their families. Oftentimes yeah. they're under attack by NGOs and et cetera. Right. Like we saw what just happened in the main lobster fishery, which by every measure is a sustainable heritage fishery who has done more investing mm-hmm. in and having mm-hmm. a long-term sustainable supply of, of lobster than any government or any NGO or any other individual. What was interesting is that there's been a stability of, if anything, um, there's been an enhancement of effort from, from fishermen to reduce their impacts, especially on northern right whales, which is kind of the environmental issue that everyone has focus on right now on the eastern seaboard. What we've seen is that fishermen being aware of that risk have invested heavily in a number of different mitigations, like increasing the number of pots, but basically reducing the number of lines that are in the water by reducing the number of pots or putting multiple pots on one line. Um, some of the environmental investors are investing in like ropeless gear. We are seeing a lot of adoption of mitigation strategies in that fishery. And as a result, and they even will like color their rope so that if a, if a whale will get entangled, then they'll know this happened in this part of the ocean. These fishermen were responsible for it. We need to mitigate this risk in this way. And so as a result of that, we know um, when these whales are being found what the probability of them being associated with the, the lobster fishery is. And what we've seen is that it's, it's pretty low. In fact, they've never mm. attributed a death of a whale to the main lobster fishery. Mm. And yet there's been this, you know, we don't know, is it activism or is it attacking mm. people's human rights? Like to a right to work a right Mm. to your cultural heritage. For me, I started out as like, oh gosh, this is a delicious product that I wanted to bring to market. And now I'm seeing like all of these issues that are just disturbing um, that are around fisheries. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, just that story, you bring up so many complex issues, such a complex adaptive system, right? When you talk about food and seafood and, uh, you know, to be specific. Um, it's also a brutal industry from, you know, from a commercialization standpoint, right? Like margins are, margins are thin. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot to be won and lost. And, and so, you know, you talk about, I mean, I'm curious about your journey as well. And some of the things that, that you've run up against, um, and, you know, 
is it because, does it come from the fact that you want to be vertically, vertically integrated because of the fact that you touch every point on the supply chain uh, yourself or, or in an effort to be disruptive? What are some of the things that you found from, you know, is, is that what it's attributed to, that model that you have um, that has, has led to some of these more insidious things that you've been uh, part of or, or subjected to? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't want to say like, you know, all fishing is created equal. It's not. There are massive mm -hmm. trawlers. Some of the things that you saw in Seaspiracy are true. Um, mm -hmm. Just recently, the Mexican dolphin fishery, which had bore a sustainability standard, which to me is just blue washing. They were chasing down dolphins to um, oh. to harvest yellowfin tuna, which, you know, if you ask any American. They don't agree with that. And most of the environmental organizations didn't agree with the certification of that fishery. Fortunately, it lost its certification, but that those types of activities are still happening, happening in our oceans and pushing them to the brink. That being said, like when you look at um, the FAO does a report called SOFIA, where they evaluate how much of the fish that we're consuming on an annual basis comes from sustainable sources. What we're seeing is that even though a lot of fisheries are at what they call a maximum sustainable yield, they are still su sustainable sources of seafood. So if we increase uh, regulation, if we increase um, cross-border collaboration through regional fisheries management organizations, there are really cool um, organizations that are actually now tracking vessels that are turning off their signal so that they can't be spotted by enforcement. Um, agencies. And so there are all of these different things that we can do that can increase the total amount of sustainable fish, even though it's like 82%, we have further to go for sure. But for us, um, the factors that we saw here in the U.S. market, to us, it's like in the 70s, the U.S. fisheries were overfished. Um, we had those our first signals that we saw of our oceans collapsing uh, under fishing pressure. And so there were a number of different things that happened to correct the narrative and correct the paradigm there. And it started with regulation in the form of the Magnus and Stevens Act. Um, and then, it, you know, early and impactful private family NGOs like the Monterey Bay Aquarium invested. And so all of these different factors came together to really transition our fisheries to being responsible. And so as of today, if you read NOAA's report, 98% of fish caught in the U.S. is sustainable. And so for me, it's like this is the perfect paradigm to prove that if nations like Indonesia or nations like Peru or, you know, Thailand invest in sustainable mm. fisheries, then they will see a market benefit as a result of those investments. And mm -hmm. what we're seeing is the opposite. These fishermen have largely borne the responsibility and the cost of making these investments only to put themselves mm. out of business and only to yeah. see our market source from other parts of the world who are less invested in sustainable fisheries. So for us, mm. we're like, if we can't prove this works here, it's not going to work anywhere. Um, and so for it was a necessity. We, we won't pack in Thailand or, or wherever we were. Sure. We were. We, we, we want to invest in our community. Uh, we wanted mm -hmm. to do it with, through a co-packer. We couldn't. No co-packer could do it for us. Um, and so we 
started building up the supply chain every from vessels that are landing literally we we, we know the names and of our captains who source our fish right in LA like they land the fish in LA and it comes up to Santa Cruz and we process it um and we also wanted to establish a mass premium positioning so the right form function and fit to reach a unique audience because it's my perspective that incremental changes in products can't drive the kind of change that is globally needed in in the seafood market. So you saw like brands sure. like Wild Planet come to fruition in like 2005. And those guys just, God bless them. They did an exceptional job of proving new markets and that consumers would pay a premium for responsibly caught fish. Um, and so a mm-hmm. little bit more expensive, um, higher, I think higher quality. It's a single cook, so you get a lot more omega-3s than they can. But if you look at the, um, the, the, they usually plot like volume, total volume of units sold and then dollar value. And if you look at that over time, from the time that Wild Planet entered the market, what you see is that the volumes decreased, but the total dollar value of the industry stayed the same. So it was, it's roughly $2.7 billion oh. category. And that's like, that's an incredible story for our oceans. Less fish out of the water, more responsible supply chains. And, you know, responsible producers who can trace their fish back to whether that be a fishery in the Maldives or in the Solomon Islands, the Poland line caught, just wonderful story. But since about 2015, what we've seen is leveling off. They've gone as far as they can. Um, And now Mm -hmm. we're just seeing an influx of a a number of new brands that are now cannibalizing market share, um, which is, Mm. I mean... Don't get me wrong. That's a business plan. Um, it's not the one we're engaged in. We really need, saw a need to shift out of that um, over, um, how do I say, oversubscribed, too much private equity money in the space to where people are just clawing their faces off, trying to you know force their right. way on a, a crowded shelf that really just, just doesn't even need that. You're not adding much value to the marketplace. So we were like, okay, well, and beyond that, we have a price premium. So we have to be in the, you know, in the middle of the price for our set. And for us, it's like, oh, it's meat snacks. People will pay $4 an ounce for meat snacks. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And they're They're delicious. delicious. (laughs) Categories growing. You know, yeah. Clarice, I was, um, I'm curious, just, you know, thinking about, the future of um, Healthy Ocean Seafood Company. What is ex- what excites you um, from your perspective about the organization? Then, of course, you have um, uh, Pescavore as your um, kind of one of your products. Like, what what are you so excited about in the next, you know, what, one to five years? Great question. We love disruption. It like it's what wakes us up in the morning. So, uh, right now, Pescavore is growing at fifty x. The category for meat snacks, meat snacks is growing over 10% CAGR. So we're just like, wow, this is growing category. Flexitarian is leading the market. Sticks are leading the market. This is disruption, yeah. not only for the seafood industry, but also for the meat snacks industry. Meat is not the most, um, we all know that eating less meat will have a, a categorical impact on the planet, categorically positive, positive impact on the planet. Not to dis- disparage our friends at like Country Archer and um, New Primal, who are doing it better. Um, you know, they're sure. grass-fed, regenerative, tonka bar. Um, 
but eating less meat is responsible. Um, and so we love that. And then food access equity and inclusion. So a lot of our, we have a lot of scraps that are just not suitable to jerky. So we've been working, I want to say, for about seven years on introducing a upcycled fish burger into the National School Lunch Program. And we've tried to take this idea everywhere. The, the margins are mm. low um, because it's, you know, they're capped. It's like $3, right, for the, the federal government will pay for the 32 million students who benefit, who are, by the way, nutritionally insecure and need right. a school lunch. Right. They're capped in how much they mm. can pay. So we're like, I am so passionate about that issue because seafood is imperative at every stage of life because of omega-3s and it's a healthier protein, um, but it's also a, it's an expensive protein. And so, you know, getting that, it's, it's, it's important at every stage of life, but it's especially important for developing minds. So getting that into the schools for me is um, a passion project. And then beyond that, just That's total funny. disruption. Like, let's turn this table over, <laughs> try again. I love it. We love that here. <laughs> so there's just, I have to ask, since you're here mm-hmm. and you've, you've mentioned a lot of other brands, both in seafood and food in general. And, and so, and, and you'll talk about a brand that I'm, you know, that I know and I'm familiar with. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a good brand. And you'll be like, no, they suck. And then you'll be like, <laughs> and, and then you'll, then you'll talk about another brand. And I'm like, I just, I'm going to wait until she tells me if it sucks or not. How do we, how do we get myself in trouble? (laughs) No, I, you know what I mean? I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing when I say it sucks, but what, um, how do we become better consumers? Certainly of seafood, right? Especially like the off the shelf stuff in my, you know, in my whole foods and sprouts and whatever. How do do you look at and evaluate seafood products? It's a really good question. I think that some of the standards have some distance to go, but they've also been doing a lot of work for longer than any of us have. So like the Monterey Bay Aquarium's Seafood Watch program has a red, yellow, green system. And they don't evaluate seafood from everywhere in the world, but they evaluate anything of commercial relevance here in the state. It is true that they were at the center of the Maine lobster fishery controversy and largely a debacle, but in large part, in broad strokes, that is a resource that you can trust um, to give you credible advice about responsible seafood options. Um, there are other fishery certification bodies like Fair Trade that you can look for. Um, there are, beyond that, there, I mean, there are, the Marine Stewardship Council is a certification body. They've also had some hiccups, like certifying the dolphin fishery. So it gets, I mean, it gets a little complicated. For us, buying American is, you're going to, NOAA is regulating every fishery of importance here, well, just in general, um, here in the States. Mm. And so if you're buying American fish, you can trust that it's responsible. You can trust that it has traceability and you can trust that, you know, it, it's regulated. That's a big part is not just the current sustainability criteria, but also that it's under management and that it's being watched so that that doesn't change. So buy American. Buy right. it, please buy American. Buy American. <laughs> well, Love that. Well, well, Clarice Owens, oh. I just want to thank you so much for being here. I learned a ton. I could go on for a long time. There's so many things to think about with regard to 
uh, particularly with the seafood. So thank you so much for joining us. And uh, uh, hopefully you'll come back and join us again at some point. Thank you so much yeah. for the opportunity. It's my first podcast ever. Thanks. Hey, all right. <laughs> Woo. We love being people's first. <laughs> I love it. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for your work. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Stay with us. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Calm Reflections and Rants and Raves. Welcome back, folks. So we just finished chatting with Clarice Owens um, of Healthy Ocean Seafood Company. Rob, what'd you think? She's so cool, right? I mean, she's so great. <laughs> I want to be her friend. <laughs> you think she'll? Do you think she'll become our friend? It's what do just, you think? Yeah, super cool. Um, but I we didn't talk enough about this, the the uh, the actual product as well, right? Because we've yeah. we've had the product. Right, we've we're not. We're turkey, not big. The tu- the the tuna. We've had the tu- tuna jerky. We're not big product endorsers, but it's so good, right? Like it's really good. It's good. It was tasty. It's sustainable. I gotta say, it's also like <laughs> filled with a lot of nutrients, right? There's a lot of protein. It's a win-win situation. Yeah, it's super high quality. My son, my son, is a big seafood jerky person, right? He just loves it. Like so, I'm I'm big. I'm a big fan. I think that you know, like my, my big takeaway. I thought about all the the complexity of the issues that she was bringing up. And so, and, you know, she knows this industry inside and out. There's so many different uh, factors into, you know, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And so, so I think about, you know, in terms of a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion work that we do, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, there's, there's all these different factors, you know, working against each other and, you know, nothing's, nothing's simple, right? Like, Everything complex, adaptive. You think that you're making an impact right. in one area and you're causing issues in another area. So I, I just thought seafood is a great analogy for DEI uh, work and, and, and that we do in general. Yeah, it was a different industry for me uh, to hear from and have kind of this insight into from a DEI perspective. So I really appreciated Clarice sharing her perspectives, her experiences. And also what she's excited for, because um, I think that's also really important, just just navigating uh, what's next and what's to come for her and for the organization. And I and love the seafood burger idea. I'm, I'm all in, right? Yeah, you're all in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. It's that time for rants and raves. Uh, we did the toying toss as usual. Rob, yeah. you go first with the rant. The toying toss, as I call it as well. I'm glad. I'm glad you said it. Yeah. I always call it a toying cost. Oh, is that the, what I said? That's um... <laughs> I said toying cost. That's hilarious. Okay, coin toss. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long. Um, all right, all right, Nadia. All right, Nadia. We got to talk about our friend Tucker Carlson. Oh boy, I, are you familiar? I'm all right. Very so the familiar. things. Yeah. So the uh, former Fox News host, uh, he was let go from his position this past week. The things that we learned. I think are infuriating and rant worthy by some accounts. His show was the most racist in the history of cable news, but we know that it has, he became more racist and lost advertisers. He actually became more profitable. Nadia. Uh, we also learned that, learned that he was a big user of data and he looked at ratings on a minute by minute basis. And we learned that, and he learned through that process that by looking at those ratings, he could tell that the stuff that was the most nativistic, the stories about immigrant crime, things that stoked white fear and anxiety were ratings winners for his show. 
And therefore, he cynically pushed those topics as hard as he could to make sure that he was uh, gained popularity and grew his readership and and made more yeah, money. He made an he made a name for himself, huh? He did, he did, and and then so the, back to the you know the rant piece. His firing was was not for that, right? So like, <laughs> all those things that, that make him a terrible human mm -hmm. uh, for his racist show, it was because of his negative comments about Fox management, right? And right. so it's a terrible person. And the leadership at Fox is equally terrible mm -hmm. for only taking action for this person because he said mean things about them. Yeah. Good riddance. <laughs> oh, he'll be See back. See you, Tucker. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm going to end on the rave because this is really, yeah. uh, this is a fun one. So uh, the first Barbie doll representing a person with Down syndrome was released by Mattel. So we talked a lot about Mattel the last, probably like the last season. Mattel's been mm -hmm. really stepping it up. So in the past, Mattel's Barbie has been criticized for spreading unrealistic beauty standards for the children who play with the dolls. In recent years, the company has moved to deviate um, from that reputation by offering more diverse dolls. What I want to just mention here, I thought it was really interesting because it wasn't like they just decided, oh, we're going to like do a Down syndrome Barbie doll. They actually mm -hmm. worked with the National Down Syndrome Society in order to accurately represent a person with Down syndrome. This included shaping the doll's body to include a shorter frame and longer torso, torso and a round face that features smaller ears and almond-shaped slanted eyes. Um, the NDSS, the National Down um, Syndrome Society, said in their announcement that um, also the doll wears a yellow and blue dress with butterflies, all symbols associated with Down syndrome awareness. Um, even the doll's pink necklace has special meaning. It has like three upward chevrons. Um, which are meant to represent the three copies of the 21st chromosome, which is the genetic material that causes the characteristics associated with Down syndrome. So I just thought this was really special and um, wanted to share this with our with our listeners. Yeah, I think that every time that we do a story like this about a more inclusive uh, product launch, anytime that it's done in, a, in partnership with the groups that are actually being affected or represented, then it is a success. Yeah. And people feel good about it. And when, when it's not done that way, then it's, it tends to fail. So yeah, great rave. Glad you brought that to our attention. Sure. All right, Nadia, thanks for another great episode. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcast. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out Nadia at nasconsultants.com and Rob at tecanoconsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Clarice Owens of the Healthy Ocean Seafood Company. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Nadia. Be well. <laughs>